Welcome to the metagame. This is a podcast on how to become a live player in the infinite game of life. I'm your host, Daniel Kazanjan, and today I am speaking with the Swedish philosopher Alexander Bard. I'm kind of struggling with an intro here because you're a philosopher, but prior to that, you were really involved in the music industry and you've sold millions of records. You were once the, the Simon Cowell of Europe. And uh, when you were relatively young, you sold a record label and that's where you made your fucking money. And then you became a, a philosopher. Um, but I'm curious how you describe yourself today. Like, who are you and where do you see yourself going? Oh, I would go back to my boy's room when I was seven years old. Mm. I had one wall full of rock stars and another wall full of philosophers. They were all men and they had big beards. Right. So I wanted to become a man with a big beard and I wanted to become either rock star or philosopher. And I've been very fortunate that I managed to become both. But I think the, what I realized when I was young was that at least I couldn't have anything meaningful to say to the world of philosophy until I was at least 40 years old. So it's a really good idea to pursue another career, what I call the second archetype, you know? And uh, I chose between theater and music. And I was really into theater when I was a teenager. I went to drama school in the US. You know, I went to Oberlin College, <laughs> woke center today. Uh, but uh, it was, I was clearly set to, you know, I wrote my first play when I was 19 years old. But then this was the 1980s and the synthesizer to come along. And with the synthesizer, also the sequencer, it was you know, suddenly possible to computerize music. And I wasn't much of a musician, but I loved that you could make music with the computers. So I started making my own sounds to my own video art pieces and drama pieces. And eventually people started asking about the music and they were even more interested in the music than they were in the place. And mm -hmm. um, when I was 23, I, I made that important decision to pursue a career in the music industry. And I tried to both pursue like really subversive things and also, you know, try to stay commercial as well to support myself and the artists that I work with. You're probably familiar with a band called the Cardigans because no, they were not. really, okay, you're, you're too young for them. They were huge in America in the 1990s at several number one records. And, and they were one of the bands that I work with and they were signed to my label that I run together with a guy called Ola Hawkinson. And, and this label is called Stockholm Records. It was like a really cool hip pop rock dance music label in the 1990s. And we sold it to Universal Music in 1998. And that's when I had to fuck off money for the first time in my life. I could really pursue whatever I wanted to. Right. So having fuck off money, essentially, it's a philosophical concept, to be honest about it. It's, it's, it's like having, besides your health, you and I both struggle with health issues. Okay, that's the number one thing in your life. But if you've got your health reasonably fixed, freedom is actually what you get out of money. Mm. That's why money is important. If, if you can say no to everything that you don't want to do, you never have to be a whore ever again. You can do exactly what you want to do. You have freedom. And that's exactly why it's great to have money. And I had money from 1998. The year after I got involved with the Stockholm School of Economics, I'd been a student there before. That's why I relocated to Stockholm, Sweden. How old and, were you at uh, the time? Uh, like, <laughs> for a mathematician, that should be like the easiest question <laughs> in the world. I'm in my late 30s here. Yeah, so right. um, what I did was- It's a good time to get fuck off money. 
It is. It was kind of also, I had friends who challenged me and said, why the fuck do you write this? Even if they're clever, why do you write these little pop songs when you should really be a Hegel or Nietzsche or pursue something like that by now? These are my friends who challenged me, especially on LSD trips in the 1990s. You know, people go like, why aren't you doing your optimizer capacities? It's like, well, maybe I should. So after I got the fuck of money in 1998, I was offered a post at the Stockholm School of Economics and it had everything to do with digital. They just suddenly discovered that the internet's gonna take over the world. And the one thing nobody's learned anything about and were prepared for in their careers was how digital would affect them. So I got involved in a lot of international networks of people who were kind of digital pioneers, you know, pioneers in digital theory. Certainly there were a lot of tech entrepreneurs involved as well. I got to know the PayPal guys, you know, people like that who either practiced digital or had theories about it. And in 1999, I gave a first lecture series at the Stockholm School of Economics that caused kind of a shock and, and where I basically said the internet's going to take over the world, but not at all the way you, you think it will. You know, all the dot-com companies will go down in flames. They will not work because they're too much of an old paradigm. They don't understand what's genuinely new with digital. Right. And that worked. That book, The Netocrats, came out in the year 2000 and became like a worldwide success. You know, it, it was translated to 20 languages and I traveled the world. And, you know, it's like the rock star thing. You know, I traveled the world with my different bands and have been successful and, you know, toured every continent on the planet. And suddenly I was doing the same thing as a writer and a philosopher. And I think my co-writer, Jan Sedeqvist, and I we had an important decision to make in 2002. We had a British publisher, a big book publisher, who essentially loved to turn our books into coffee table books. Right. I hated that. Okay, I hated that with the it's like somebody tells you you're really good at jazz, but they really want you to make pop songs. I see. Yeah. You want to make jazz music. So you have to make that important decision. Do I want to go for something long-term, smaller audience? People might not get what I'm up to. And it might take 20, 30 years for anybody to understand it, but it will be the real challenge. Or will I try to, you know, become popular, be a popularizer of art and philosophy and have a large audience and you know, produce coffee table books that people buy because they look great God and because of what they contain. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to do the coffee table book thing. And I think I couldn't have done that if I hadn't been in the music industry before that, because we made these decisions constantly at the record company. Right, right. We always had artists that we defended that they were very left field and very experimental and didn't sell many records. And at the same time, other artists who were highly commercial and prefer to be that. And we just made sure these artists respected one another and loved to be on the same label because the cool guys added the credibility to the record label, but the commercial guys brought in the bacon. So everybody could then you know, benefit from that mix. And I just thought, okay, maybe my music career there was the commercial sort of widespread one. Eventually when I went on television shows here in Scandinavia, that was a sort of, you know, public persona available to people, you know, talking on their behalf, things like that. But what I started pursuing as a philosopher when I started writing when I was 39 years old was what I would have done if I'd become a jazz musician instead. It's like the uncompromising artistic path. So, when you write a book under those circumstances, you don't care if anybody ever gets it. Right. You it's are the art. writer. Yeah, you're the writer, but you're also the observer. 
of the whole process and you're the judge whether the quality of the book is good enough or not. So when John Söderqvist and I write, and we write both in English and Swedish as original languages, it forces us to think it's an incredibly tiresome process to write in two languages at the same time, but it forces us to really think what we're doing. You know, is this really what we want to say? Or is it just too much going on here that's of no interest, right? So we slaughter ourselves until we're finished. But when we are finished between us, John and me, we give the entire book to the publishers to be published and we don't want their opinion. We have the opinion. It's our opinion that counts. We never, I never read reviews. I, I always recommended artists when I was in the music industry, don't ever read a review, especially not the good ones because the good ones will make you think you're doing something that they can understand. In reality, you're probably not optimizing your talent when you do it. So just don't read reviews. If you can't make up your own mind about your own music, you're certainly not musically talented. If you can't make up your own mind about a book you just wrote, you're certainly not talented enough to be a writer. Right, and in a way, what's the point of fuck you money or fuck off money if you're not gonna then do that and practice your art without trying to be commercial? Exactly. Yeah, we, uh, we had a clubhouse room a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine and I, and we titled it, Jesus Christ had fuck you money, Jack Dorsey doesn't. And it was a pretty generative conversation that kind of got to fuck you money is more of, you were saying it's a philosophical thing. It's a state of mind as opposed to a state of your bank account. But how do you think about it? Well, the, the way I think about it, is that, say you run into somebody who has fuck off money on their bank account they will not do anything with you unless they really want to. Yeah, you can it's trust like, them it's, more. Yeah, it's like you, the, the thing you dream about in a love relationship is that that person is there with you and want to be with you. And, and that person is free to go and pursue relationships with other people as much as they like, but they stay. It's precisely people are free, but still stay. You know, it's the beautiful old saying, if you love somebody, set them free. The point with that is if you love somebody, you set them free to pursue whatever they want. You tell them basically that you should never, ever feel any shame or guilt if you leave me. Right. Now, if you do that and you mean that seriously, if they then stay, then you know for certain that they love you. Okay. So fuck of money is great also for people who you run into have fuck of money because they will then look at the proposals you come with and say that, okay, do you want to go ahead with creating this network of people or starting this company or maybe writing this book together? So whatever they come in through the door and present to you, if they really want to do it, well, if they got fuck of money in their bank account, and they say yes, then you know they're involved, like they're engaged. So this is the problem, of course, and people don't have the fuck of money, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that they need to pay their bills every day. And then it's much better to sit down pragmatically and be honest about that and say, how many hours per day do you need to do whoring work to right. pay your bills, right? Because once you've done the whoring work and you have enough money to pay your bills, then you have at least a temporary little session of fuck of money where you can be free. How many pop songs do you need to write so that you can play jazz? Uh, you actually only have to write a few, but if they're big hits, that's enough. The trick is not to write a lot of songs because I tell you what, on Spotify, it doesn't pay off with quantity. What pays off is quality or at least commercial quality. So, you know, there are 5 million songs out of the 20 million on Spotify that nobody ever listens to. Consequently, those 5 million songs never make any money for anybody either. But, you know, there are a few songs that are huge hits and they make tons of money for people. So, so it's not the number of songs you write, but actually how big the hits are. Right. In how much money you make so i, I want to tie this uh this concept of fuck off money fuck you money 
and the freedom that it engenders with the theme of your first book, the, the Netocrats. So I'm in the middle of reading it right now. And what I'm getting is that there's this trend that we're in the middle of right now that is going to be very dramatic, as dramatic as going from feudalism to capitalism. Capitalism is over. We've entered attentionalism. And whenever there's a trend that that's, that's that big, there are going to be winners and losers. And just to put it really, really simply, and then we can reintroduce the nuance. Let's say I'm listening to this and I really want to be a winner in whatever this big trend is. I don't even care what the trend is. I just really, really want to be a winner. How do I do that? And then we can we can weave in the theme of fuck you money because I think it's related. Let's go for the negation first. Let's say what you don't want to be. You don't want to aspire to the old ideals. That's precisely why there's so many problems right now with the old institutions that are dying. And when old institutions are dying, they tend to go into what's called the supernova phase. So they kind of blow up, <laughs> become huge and, and you know, hit the drums loudly to pretend that they're more important than ever. This is what's happening with politics at the moment. Now, any decent you know, American housewife will tell you that Biden versus Trump is just theater. It doesn't really matter. You know, if you got an election in America, we're supposed to choose between Cartman from South Park and a Corona corpse. Right. It's probably not that important, right? Power has moved somewhere else, but politics is still trying to pretend it's important. That's because politics these days is tied to mass media. Mass media is also dying screaming. We don't care about Fox or CNN, and we certainly don't care about CBS or ABC News or whatever was before them. We don't care about the New York Times any longer because we go online, and all our favorite writers, are they have their blogs, they have their podcasts, they have their webcasts, you know, a microphone, camera, widely accessible to anybody on the planet right now for no cost at all. That means everybody produces media and out of the algorithms, you can actually find the media you do want to interact with. And it's not going to be an old newspaper from Chicago. So mass media is trying to pretend that it's still alive, trying to pretend the politics is still alive. They then try to live in academia as if academia was still important. Now, what happened during the corona year was that Praxis.com, which is an ed tech startup, basically told you that, you know, it costs you $50,000 to go to Harvard if you get in there at all, which is a privilege in itself. We offer you the same education for $500. Mm. We guarantee that our test center is actually more foolproof than anything at Harvard, meaning that eventually a Praxis.com certificate will be more value than any certificate that Harvard can produce. It's the death of academia. What does academia do then? It pretends that it's more important than ever. It invents problems that never existed to be the problem solver of those problems. And it freaks out. But academia gets supported by mass media. Mass media supports politics. And these three then align themselves with what we call old industry. Old industry is capitalism. And capitalism actually, it's not really tied to production. Capitalism is tied to marketing because that's how the capitalists present themselves to you. That's called advertising. Now, what do we call advertising online? We call it spam and we hate it. Mm. And what we do is we get rid of it as quickly as we can. And, and at least when you did Google search 10 years ago, you had like the ads that were like in the right column of the Google page because the algorithm directed the search. It didn't cost you anything to get into that 
column of the algorithm of search unless you know you were the best at what you did. If you were globally or locally the best at what you did, if you provided the highest possible quality into the customer experience, you would be in the algorithm, you'd be on the search, and you wouldn't have paid for it at all. The people who paid to Google to be there and sponsored Google to be, become the world's biggest company were the people who desperately put their ads in there. These days when the ads are moving into the Google field and taking over the Google search, we're leaving Google search. We go to DuckDuckGo, we go to search engines that give us the free and open algorithm, and we hate Google for becoming corrupted by money. So the corruption of money, then manipulation of politics, and the conformation of academia are the three enemies we're up against. Now, please note that this is why we get phenomena like woke, for example, because woke, it doesn't matter if it comes from the right or from the left. If it comes from the right, it's probably just cynical commercial corporations that try to convince us that they should dictate how we think. Mm. Well, fuck off. <laughs> Nobody ever follows a company on Twitter, Instagram, because we know they're just gonna force feed us their commercials down the throat. We hate them with the vengeance and they don't realize that. So these old forces, old industry, academia, mass media and politics unite and scream and shout. I mean, Islamic fundamentalism or Christian fundamentalism is nothing compared to capitalist fundamentalism. What we're seeing now is a stage of capitalist fundamentalism where these old institutions scream and shout. Now, if you're clever, the first thing you do is that you decide not to be part of that. So you're thinking, okay, they're screaming at the top of the lungs because they're dying and they're dying because something new is about to appear. And that's what we called an autocracy. So we wrote a theory about that over 20 years ago, and it's now coming true. And essentially, John and I are just writing endless, we told you so, we told you so, we told you so stories and papers now, because we presented this theory 21 years ago. We then followed it up with a book called The Global Empire three years later, which is you know, fiendishly difficult technical philosophy, but it describes the fact that technology will build a global empire without borders, whereas we humans will isolate ourselves into smaller and smaller tribes. That's exactly what we're seeing now because that's exactly how the internet's developing. So we, we basically painted this picture over 20 years ago and then we just sat and filled in the details ever since. Cause the theory could be, it could have been you know, set up over in the 1990s. It wasn't that hard. Once you realize that all the computers of the world will be united with one another into one giant computer. And those computers would then become, you know, you could carry them around more and more and they'd be more and more powerful. And eventually those computers would be smartphones that'd be more powerful than a supercomputer would have been 20 years ago. But all these smartphones would be connected one another into one giant massive computer, which is now covering the entire planet with satellites and cables and everything, which is the internet, right? So the internet has taken over the world and that's the global empire we now live in. And once you see that, and you think, well, who's going to be really good at sort of finding a good position in that system? And this is what's constantly being repeated, the paradigm shifts. There's always a real power, like a power that has control over the resources of that system. That would have been land during feudalism. That would be money during capitalism. Now it is data. Okay, so it controls and process data would be incredibly powerful. That is the first autocracy and that's exactly what the big tech companies have become. 
thing, Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Amazon. exactly. Anybody collects data and then starts processing that data and sells it off in packets to, to, to do something with it is, is that kind of a system. They can also be your own private address book. Some people now have address books with 20,000 addresses in them, and they're not willing to share them with anybody right. because they realize that that address book is incredibly valuable, and you spent years building it. And actually, if you actually know all those people in that address book, which is way more than 5,000 Facebook friends, you're probably at the top of a certain power hierarchy that is now gradually being more obvious to people. So there's the second power that comes into the picture, and that is the symbolic power. And these are the people who create the narrative about the digital age. You and I are both part of that class. We're already symbolic netocrats. We call them protopians. Mm. Because they're not utopian, they're not dystopian. That whole thing with utopian, dystopia is something we're done with. But a protopian world where we constantly optimize processes and learn from previous mistakes and therefore increase the value of any process we're involved with. That's essentially how you do engineering. That's how you do innovation, right? So yeah, the people who do that, but do that symbolically and do it with language and do it with artistic expression are basically now creating the story about the digital age. That in itself is incredibly powerful. And, and what stands out for me from that second piece is that there's, there's an overabundance of information. So what's lacking is the ability to draw meaning out of that. And is that what you're saying? The symbolic netocrats are those that create the narrative and the exactly. meaning out of that? Which brings us to the third one. You're very smart here. The third one is the imaginary structure. So the imaginary structure, what you usually apply the word power onto, is not there yet, but was certainly developed. We call it sensocracy. Mm. So these are the people who have access to all the sensors and senses around the world involving humans and everything else that's alive around us, and then involving sensors. For example, if you predicted the weather 30 years ago, that was just a guessing game. If you predict the weather today over the next three days, that's just going to be an expertise science because you got the data to do it. So... Once you go from data processing to actually innovating, what are we going to look for? Like, okay, not only will we collect the data, but maybe we should start collecting data in a certain way because we're interested in creating certain values out of that. Then that's a sensocracy. And this is where we are now philosophically. So what, for example, John Siddiqui is now working with, is a response to the Chinese stream of the sensocracy, which clearly is a tyrannical one with the Xi Jinping at the top of the heap, and either runs in soccer so when he controls every citizen in communist China and possibly outside of communist China too. Now that's to us Westerners Norwegian nightmare, but that's exactly what the Chinese communists are pursuing. And we have to find a response to that because they handled the COVID-19 pandemic better than we did, although it came from their territory, which speaks volumes about how vulnerable our systems are and how easily we could suddenly have a tyrant in America or a tyrant in Europe or something like that. Because when people get shocked at the enormous speed of change, they will start looking for easy solutions to difficult problems, and they will then ask for a tyrant to step forward and solve the problem for them. Right. And this is, this is the problem, hierarchy versus network. If you read Niall Ferguson's book, The Tower and the Square, she built a book, it's very, very closely aligned to the kind of work that Jean Sedeckist and I do. It's like, historically speaking, there's anarchy, and then there is a strict hierarchy, and the strict hierarchy becomes tyrannical, the anarchy, it's flat, it looks beautiful at first, but it comes like just a mess and eventually starvation and you know the war of everybody against everybody is what, what comes out of it. And this constant dialectical process between hierarchy and network is therefore necessary. So any imaginary power 
in an autocratic uh, nobility of a digital world. We'll have to provide some kind of order, but our argument is if that order is too stiff and too tyrannical, it will actually, we're not moralizing this, we're just saying it will actually kill itself. Mm. But if you open it up and you build it in an open way, for example, like the US constitution, and what most people don't know is that the US constitution originally built on the Persian empire. And the Persian empire operated for 2,200 years because it had power sharing or power splitting built into its very construction from the very beginning. And what we're arguing philosophically is that that's what we have to repeat today. Before we know, the protopians are everywhere, people like us, the data collectors and processors have been around for 20 years. We call them informationalists. So if the informationalists and the protopians are there, what are the sensocrats going to be like? And our, what we're going to recommend in our work is that the sensocrats need to understand the world as if you do power splitting or power sharing built in from the very beginning, saying the program you work with in the internet protocol, then that creates a world that's much more similar to say, you know, uh, trade routes with marketing places, then it's similar to any sort of big capital that runs an empire through tyrannical force. Does this have anything to do with crypto? I'm, I'm getting kind of those themes, you know, decentralized. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, encryption is a perfect example of that, both problematic and has fantastic capacities. So encryption is a cat and mouse game where people who want to escape the power structure of the world they live in can then encrypt their information and only talk to the people that they want to talk to. Now, that is incredibly liberating. It, it, it creates forces out of the control of the old structure. That's exactly why the old power structures hate encryption. Okay? The problem, though, is that once information is encrypted, for example, to allow for a criminal network to operate any way it likes, then ordering a murder with somebody you don't like becomes very, very easy. Right. And people won't like that. <laughs> And when that happens, the Chinese communists will say, well, we have a system where it's actually impossible because encryption outside of government control is banned. And anybody pursues encryption outside of government control will have 3 million censors chasing them down, right? That's exactly what the Chinese communists are doing with Taiwanese hackers at the moment. They try to kill them. Whereas the Taiwanese hackers are, of course, the anarchists of our time. They're the freedom fighters of our time, and we love them for it. We, we have to also... Be, be honest enough to say that, okay, but a total anarchy will not work. So what, what, what works though over time is that organically any system that starts an anarchy will develop a certain plurarchy after a while. And plurarchy is the word we also introduced over 20 years ago. It means that automatically, tribal poetically or out of poetically, certain nodes will always occur in a network. We will all start following certain people mm. that have worked harder than the rest of us have, where they have a certain charisma, and we will follow them. We will recommend our friends to follow them together with them. And because we follow the same node, that node becomes the center of a new subculture. And it has a very tribal structure too. You and I, for example, are very closely connected to Peter Lindbergh and the Stoa. I mean, you were almost part of running it with, with, with Peter. And, and I'm sort of your representative of the other side of the ocean in Europe. The Stoa now is exactly a subculture in itself. Ironically, Peter wrote a piece about mimetic tribes. He's created right. one himself. So these mimetic tribes that Peter Lindbergh talks about in his paper are exactly the sort of necrocratic subcultures that we wrote about 20 years ago. And they're now occurring everywhere and they are plurarchical. And what the plurarchical structures then do is that on the next level, the nodes would start looking for a larger node that unites the nodes. What you see here is you see the development of a network hierarchy. 
And so you have to have some kind of hierarchy. This sort of bottom-up network hierarchy that I think we're creating right now in America and Europe, because we do have free societies and we, we can do what we want, and we have access to cheap technology and things like that. So um, we are developing these sort of network pyramids already bottom-up, and I think those network pyramids are the very key to how we respond to the Chinese Communist Party and its vision for you know, a totalitarian socracy. Right. So uh, just let me play this back to you. There's a taxonomy here of, of netocrats. You said the first were the informationalists, which are the big tech companies like Facebook and Google. Yeah. They're the that, real power. They have access to the real asset, which now is data rather than capital. Yeah. Right. And then you said the next is the protopians, which are the narrative builders, the the people like us who are trying to tell the story around the information. Yeah, we are killing the academics and they kill the church before us. So, right. so that's the symbolic power, yeah. And the third is the sensocracy or the this, uh, the digital dictators. The, the part I don't fully understand is why- They're not, they're not dictators, no. These, these are, the sensocrats are replacing the politicians. The politicians replace right, the right. monarchs before them. So that's what imaginary power is when you just ask people on the street, uh, who's got the power? They will, they will seriously say the president of the United States. You know? So the imaginary power is, 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 is where we look when we sort of imagine that there's a right. power structure, right? That's why conspiracy theorists are always obsessed with these imaginary powers. And, and in a way, God in the sky or the stars deciding your life in astrology, the deep sort of, which is like female conspiracy theory, by yes, the way, yes. called astrology. So these, all these ideas about a higher power that's in control, uh, so that somebody's in control if something happens, you know, that's the imaginary power. And that position is taken over by the censocrats. But the censocrats are not necessarily dictatorial. That's certainly the dream of the Chinese Communist Party. Yes. That's precisely why John and I have worked so much in Taiwan. And John has been, a, you know, an advisor to Taiwanese corporations and even the government. Why we work in Taiwan is because the Taiwanese want to invent a model of an open and free, but highly creative, prosperous Chinese society as a response to communist China. Of course they have to, because that's the whole raison d'etre why Taiwan exists and still has claims to China. And we love it because it, it, we're not fighting the Chinese. We're fighting the idea of a Chinese communist world dictatorship. And, you know, America could go down the same route, but thankfully you got the constitution in America. So you, you, you already have a power sharing structure, uh, which, which, which I think has saved America several times over and probably will do the same thing now. It will save America again. But I think digital will also need this sort of split of power between an imaginary digital realm, a symbolic digital realm, and real digital realm in the same sense. That's why we should not leave big tech in California to itself. We should continue the tech clash. We should continue to attack the big tech companies and hold them responsible for what they're up to. So they have to make up their mind what it means for them to be a real power, real assets in a digital age, and for them not to claim any symbolic or imaginary power. Okay, so that's what I was a little confused about because I couldn't find a bright line between the informationalists, like the big tech companies, and then the sensocrats. And what I'm getting yeah. now is you're delineating a space for what's to come, right? Yeah, the so even if we mix up the paradigms here, but just to make it simple, you don't want Jeff Bezos for president. Yeah, yeah. No, you don't. Not. Because Jeff Bezos is already way more powerful than Joseph Biden or Donald Trump could ever be. Yeah. Donald Trump 
wasn't even a precedent. It was a fucking TV show. <laughs> it's also the end of television. It's so paradoxical. And he just spent four years of his TV show in the White House with Nancy Pelosi as the evil witch. You know, right, and right. he moved out because his TV show moved back to Florida or something. It, it, that's all there was to Donald Trump, if you think about it. It's just like, if you think about his perspective, he was a TV show that pretended to be precedent and no longer was relevant. There was only media phenomena that didn't really matter. And then he moved out. So, um, yeah, but I, we are living right in the shift. And what is problematic today is that the old institutions are falling apart so rapidly without the new institutions being in place. And that's why this book, Digital Libido, is so dark. Because what we're saying in the book is that if the old paradigm falls apart so quickly that the proper power structure of the new paradigm is not in place yet, then it will be really anarchic and really, really bloody and horrible. Most likely so. And I don't think I don't think we're through in any way to the next stage yet. We haven't seen a protopian symbolic class arise as of yet. They certainly will. And these are people who will come out of the internet. These are the best bloggers and the best podcasters and the best webcasts we have around. You know, we, we go for digital lectures these days. We have the best lectures in the world, you know, local professors, they're out of work for good reasons, because they were good enough to take the competition from the best lecturers in the world. We sort of move towards a digital realm where we get a lot of quality education, enculturement, things like that. And that's exactly what we get out digital. And that is the beginning of the protopian class. But what we still haven't figured out is how we could get an imaginary class that actually are in charge of digital and are trusted to right. run it properly for humanity. We don't know that yet. Maybe it's so difficult that the imaginary autocracy is exactly where AI will be needed. And we might right. even leave it to AI to run it because it's just too difficult for humans to comprehend. So let's say someone's listening to this and they, they want to be a part of this protopian class because that seems to be the place where uh, a, an individual or a individual, to use your word, can insert themselves on the winning side of this trend. Well, I, th I think it's you and me. I think the people who follow us, our friends that are engaging in this conversation with you and me right now, are protopians. You know, it's just, I asked you if you went to Burning Man. You said you've never been to Burning Man. It kind of surprised me because a North American guy like you would have been to Burning Man. Burning Man is just one of these signs of, okay, if you've been, you've been involved with burner culture, if you've been a hacker or something like that the last 20 years, then certainly you're very protopian. And certainly if you pursue artistic things, like you do theater, you make music, you do drama, or you just love, you know, setting up blogs and podcasts and things, all of those things are artistic uh, pursuits. And that's a protopian's always did. So the protopians are replacing the former academics before them. that was the church or the church of monks and nuns super pursued things. And I think we're going to have a lot of digital hermits, you know, right. things like that too. So uh, the entire history of religion and academia and arts is the history of protopians prior to us becoming digital protopians today. So this is a really good time to go into the archetypology stuff, because when I first heard you explain this, um, or I don't know if you call it tribal mapping, it, it was one of the most liberating ideas I've heard in the last two years that saved me thousands of dollars on therapy, where if we go all the way back to the original nomadic human tribe, there are stable archetypes for how people showed up. And uh, you've done some work into articulating these. And yeah. one of those archetypes, the shamanic type 
I'm mapping on now to the Protopians, but maybe you can go and, and explain that, yeah, that whole let, let, let's go to a shared friend of ours, Jordan Peterson. Sure. Okay. So uh, Jordan Peterson is a great clinical psychologist who's in, also interested in Jungian archetypes. That's a good place to start. So he inspired mm -hmm. me and Joel Sedekist a lot when we wrote Digital Libido and we put forward the travel map. The travel map was first done through doing research on the last remnants of sort of wild uh, tribes around the world. So we went to tribal communities. We did our research among seven tribes in the Amazonas, in Brazil and Peru. We went to Canada to visit Inuits and look at their behavior. And we also went to Southern China, but most importantly to New Guinea because anthropologists always go to New Guinea. Why? Because New Guinea, you have areas of 500,000 people that are not even on Google Maps yet. And that's exactly what you're looking for. This might be the last chance also historically to get the data properly from tribes because anywhere you go these days, people have Wi-Fi and a t-shirt and jeans. Right? Mm -hmm. And once they have t-shirt and jeans and Wi-Fi, they're so polluted <laughs> by contemporary society, you can't really get any tribal identity out of them. I mean, if you go to New Guinea, they have more colors in their dresses now than they did 30 years ago. And you ask them, why did you put more colors into your dress when you do your ceremony? It's said, because we're tourists here and they're disappointed if we don't have tons of colors in our dresses. Wow. Okay, so you, you see the influences there already. So you wanna get the data from these guys right now before, you know, you talk about the granddad in the 1950s or something, and then you get the data. Then we take that data and throw it onto contemporary people. And the great thing with companies like Google and LinkedIn is that they're very generous with opening you know, the data reservoirs for research. And then you check, it's okay, take millions of modern urban middle-class people and, and then throw the data on them. And we discover they have the same patterns. They have a pattern of an inner circuit, which we also can call the matriarchy, that women orientate themselves towards. We have an outer circuit, we can call the patriarchy, the vast majority of men orientate themselves towards. We have, of course, about 4% of the population walk in and out between these two categories. They call androgynous people. Hey, that's why we have gays and lesbians. You know, the hairdressers and you know, people around the great hospices and, and maybe the dog clubs of the world or whatever are gay and lesbian, right? That's why we should appreciate them because they're go-betweens. Between the other two extremes of heterosexual masculinity and heterosexual femininity. But you also have a shamanoid population. And this one was really fascinating for us. We could prove that the people who could just walk straight through a battlefield in New Guinea can actually walk straight between two corporations in Manhattan and nobody will interfere what they're doing or ask for their loyalty because they could keep their mouths shut within the two different systems. They are the go-betweens, the peaceniks of the world, the guys that make sure we avoid war as long as you possibly can. So the shamanoid characters, both men and women, are another 4% of the population. And this tiny little minority are incredibly important at times of upheaval like now. So maybe they're dormant during large periods of history, but when it comes to paradigm shift, the shamanoids are exactly the people we want and need the most. They are the people who generate, for example, new Renaissance when that's needed. They might even generate a reformation when that's needed, but they're more than anything go-betweens between cultures. So in a tribe, if you outsource the horizontal communication with other tribes to a shaman, because if you walk into another tribe, they kill you. If a guy from another tribe walks into our tribe, you, he gets killed by you and your friend. So, so to have a peaceful communication between tribes, you go and ask the shaman to do that. Now, if you outsource the horizontal communication to the shaman, it's quite logical you also outsource the vertical communication to the, the shaman, God. meaning it talks to God and the devil and things like that. So you go to see him to talk to the Ur father or the Ur mother or the God of the future or the goddess of the future, or you know, and, and anything up or down, vertical or you know, beneath here, all those forces that surround 
around you that seem to dictate your life to a certain extent. Uh, you know, these, these, these are forces that the shaman will talk to on your behalf. That's how religion is constructed. So then you get the idea, okay, that's what shamanic people do. That's what interest in religion metaphysics. But once you have this map, this general map with these four categories in it, then you can look into the outer circuit and see lots of different types of men. And you can look into the inner circuit and discover that lots of different types of women. And I would then argue, referring to Jordan Peterson's work, that if he radicalized his ideas, mm. it would be by saying that archetypology is more important than psychology. You can't even talk about psychology because psychology tends to address human issues in a general sense. Like, you know, if all of us had the same sort of existential quandrums we would go through, but we don't. Men and women have very different existential concerns. Young people have very different existential concerns from old people, right? So because we have different concerns at different stages of our lives, depending on gender and depending on all kinds of things, it's very different to be urban than to be rural. They're very different concerns, right? So if you look at the different concerns that we do have, so you can first address the archetype and find out what kind of guy is Daniel, what kind of guy is Alexander, what does that mean? Who are you in relation to other people in your life? Uh, do you even have the right community around you or should you move somewhere else to be in a community where you could really pursue your archetype? And then once you've done that, you can then talk about, to make it easy and accessible to people, you can talk about a primary and a secondary archetype. And that's what I love to do with people. The primary archetype is that which you do with ease, but probably underrate yourself, but then mm. other people admire on you. The second archetype is one you could pursue. You could do it if somebody had to do it, nobody else was available, but it takes an effort. And many people focus too much on the secondary archetype because they think they have to make an effort to do something that's actually meaningful to others, right? And that's make it awfully tough on you and complicated when it doesn't have to be. If you pursue your primary archetype, it's often very easy for you to do, but it's the one thing that other people appreciate most in you. So I always recommend people to don't forget about find your primary archetype first, then decide if you're gonna pursue your primary archetype maybe as a profession, or maybe in a family role or in a community role, or maybe it's something you shouldn't do when you're 20, but you should do when you're 40. For right. example, my secondary archetype was the musician. So I pursued that in my 20s. And my primary archetype was the philosopher. And I started pursuing that when I was 40 because it made more sense to let the philosopher grow inside of me and then come out. Whereas the musician was something I could jump into because the musician was more dependent on energy and less on wisdom to be creative. The philosopher is way more important on the wisdom than on energy to be creative. And the wisdom aspect, the one you should wait with in life, but the energy demanding aspect is the one you shouldn't wait with at all. So how does somebody figure out what their primary archetype is? Go and ask your friends. So sit down with friends. I would say with men, sit down with four other men. Uh, probably men of different ages, not necessarily your best friends, because they will just say flattering things mm -hmm. to you, but rather like pick a bunch of men, maybe one your own age, and then a few men that are older than you or something like that. Then sit down with them in the men's group. And then once you get to know them and they get to know you, after a while, you just ask them, I'm trying to find my archetype. And I realized that if I try to define it myself, I'm either going to be too full of myself and be too narcissistic, <laughs> or more likely I'm gonna be really down putting about myself with little self-confidence and say, no, I couldn't possibly be that. So I just want you guys to be brutally honest with me and point out to me what my first archetype is and how I should pursue that. 
So you get it from others. You get it in your relations with other people. And if you look at the relationship with other people, what other people come to you to ask you to do, that's usually where primary archetype is located. And when you're saying archetype now, are you referring to those four options? You have the shamanoid, the androgen, uh, and no, then the- no, that is the very basic. So right. yes, you should put yourself on the travel map. 92% of men and women are either in the outer circuit where the men are or the inner circuit the women are. A very small minority, about 4%. You know, gay people aren't that common and they mm -hmm. tend to move to cities and be loud when they do. Thank God for that. But androgynous people who I love and we all love, of course, they are in between. But they're only about 4% of the population. Shamanoid people, different from the androgynous, Usually the shamanal people fuck anything that moves. They're not too concerned with sexual orientation. That's my experience with shamanal people. They also take tons of drugs and they don't fuck too much and things right. like that. You know, they're weirdos. Like they're out there in the forest somewhere. They often go out there, but they're also very, very comfortable in say, I often find shamanal people like harbor areas, like red light districts. They're not afraid of other people. They just don't care too much about it. They're not too concerned what other people think of them. That's a general trait for the shamanoids. But if you're a shamanoid, yes, then you should find your archetype within the shamanoid community. There are a few archetypes there. There are, of course, fewer, but there are a few archetypes in there that you should then pursue. Yes. So what, what are these, uh, how does the shamanoid fractionate into these other archetypes? Is that something okay. that you've Definitely artistic stuff. If you're uncompromisingly artistic about what you do and you're obsessed with becoming an artist and you express yourself naturally through art. It's the easiest thing in the world for you to write and draw and make music and play and things like that. That's a typical shamanoid trait. I would say another shamanoid trait is that experimenting socially. Mm -hmm. So when other people are obsessed with creating a nuclear family and getting a house and then getting the loans and pay them off for the next 40 years and having three babies in the process, you're more like, I could adopt anybody. I don't need really have to breed. You know, I'm probably have, when I get older, I'll be a mentor of somebody younger who's another weirdo. You know, uh, I could live with both men and women men and women can walk in and out of my life. I can be intimate with both genders. I might prefer to fuck one genital organ rather than the other one, but it doesn't really matter. Shamanoid traits. I think today, for example, the nuclear family is falling apart in North America and especially in Europe. We need shamanoid people who experiment with lifestyles and reinvent the family, reinvent the clan, reinvent the subculture. Like what does it mean to be a mimetic tribe? It's the perfect pursuit of shamanoid. So, yeah, shamanoid people are much more experimental. They tend to die younger mm -hmm. because they're much more risk takers. And if you find women who are risk takers, they're almost always shamanoid. Because women in general avoid risk taking. They're going to raise kids, for God's sake. They can't take too many risks. But women who are risk taking tend to definitely be shamanoid characters. Um, so I would say all these things, also diplomats, not diplomats in the modern sense that you get a job and you work for Joe Biden. But you know, if you think of diplomat as an archetype, like deeply, the guy who can walk into a room where people are fighting and almost killing each other and just make everybody calm down mm -hmm. and actually listen to each other, typically shamanoid trait. Also, when it comes to psychedelics and drugs and things like that, the people who can do psychedelics unproblematically, who might even talk about legalization the most, but maybe they just talk about legalization for their own kind. Yeah, you can handle psychedelics. Having a really transformative experience and going all the way out there in outer space or whatever is something that is shaman or is the easiest thing in the world. Could they just come down the next day and say, oh, that was an interesting experience, you know? I woke off and I won't mind. Whereas for a lot of normal people, you know, a lot of the inner and outer circle people, that's an experience that, that kills everything for them. Yeah, even the yeah. brain cells or whatever, they get too much of a shock. 
So shamanoid people are, are, they can absorb shocks much better than people in general can do. They take bigger risks. They're also not very good at running traditional organizations. Mm. They find it very hard to take an order from a boss. That means they're also very useless in many places. So one of the first things you learn if you're a shamanoid character is to be very grateful that there are a lot of people out there that are non-shamanoid. Because <laughs> you, including your own parents is often the case because you're very, very dependent on them for your own survival. This maps on directly to what Peterson has said about the five factor model of personality and the trait openness. And those that are incredibly high on trait openness, you could say exactly what you just said. They, they tend to be more tolerant of shocks. They tend to be bad at the bottom of hierarchies in, in yeah. organizations, but no, at the I, top, I, 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 think, I think you take all of Jordan Peterson's really meticulous work in clinical psychology and add our work to it and then study parallel. I'm just waiting for people to do that. I think to take clinical psychology, I know, for example, John Favarke, another guy, great guy from your hometown, from Toronto. Uh, John Favarke is also, also really interested in, in mixing cognitive science with archetypology of the kind of work that we do. Because Jan Sedeckist are philosophers and anthropologists. So we come to the world of anthropology through philosophy. Our job is to speculate. It's not to define and then scientifically verify things. Right. But I think if you try to mix clinical psychology, archetypology, which I think is where Jordan Peterson's work would move next. Maybe it's not him who does that. Maybe it's the students who take him seriously will do that. But I think actually uniting his two pet projects, which are, um, you know, the archetypes of anthropology and clinical psychology and turn that into even a clinical archetypology would be mm. amazing. Mm. So let's get back to this, uh, the autocracy and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, I, I still see a direct map between the way you've defined the shamanic types and the protopians. Yeah, Is it, that, that's correct. Okay. So Let's get really practical. Let's say I identify as a protopian shamanic type and I want to I want to be on the winning side of this trend. Is it as simple as find your scene on the internet, you know, create YouTube videos, get to 5k Twitter followers? Yeah. And but I, I would add to that, um, build a small showroom with some friends in the city and then move out of the city and move to the countryside and build a digital monastery. Mm. I, I'm 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 very much in favor of sort of video what I call Wi-Fi castles. So that means especially in Canada and Scandinavia, you and I live perfect places to pursue these things. So what you would do is that you get a larger place in the countryside, but you can actually get people to move there and isolate themselves for three to four weeks and go into healing processes and fix themselves. So this is where sort of therapy, diet, you know, um, you know, the gym, long walks in nature, getting reconnected with nature, all those things can also be intertwined with a sort of sound approach towards digital where you sort of figure out that I'm going to be online uh, this number of minutes or hours per day, mm. uh, and I'm going to pursue certain work when I'm there, and I'm also going to socialize when I'm there, but then I'm going to go back to the sort of physical space and find a balance between digital and physical, which I think a lot of people are looking for. And I think it's precisely it's shamanoid people who create digital monasteries in the countrysides of Canada and Scandinavia, that over the next 10 years will develop the first proper models of balancing, you know, harmonious balance between digital and physical in their lives. I think after Corona, uh, this is exactly what lots of people would pursue. And I think it's precisely shamanic characters would provide the first models and said, how about this? How, how is this for a lifestyle? And how does this relate to close relationships with other people, possibly raising children, uh, you know, having a career, you know, making enough money to support yourself, 
Could there even be some kind of a local communist economy where everybody's involved share the benefits of their work? You know, can we do something great with gated communities <laughs> rather than something horrible with them? Uh, you know, all these ideas are, are ideas that will come out of a new, uh, the new interface between digital and physical. And I think most people will actually prefer to pursue that in the countryside. I, we do it already here in Scandinavia. We have, I have so many friends already moved to the countryside and they go back and visit me in the city where I run basically now what's an urban monastery with my friends in Stockholm. And, and I think this sort of traveling between the rural and the urban and then making sure digital is available to you but doesn't take over your life and be aware of addiction behaviors and things like that. I mean, the kind of work you would do with that say, you and I would probably work, work, both work at psychedelic retreats mm. in North America and Europe and probably go in between 10 years from now. I don't think that's like a very adventurous bet, <laughs> honest about it. But those are the kinds of things that I expect people like us to do 10 years from now. We're also digital, physical, and psychedelic can meet in new interesting combinations. And hey, what we're doing then? We're inventing new religious practices. That's why our book Synthism is called Creating God of the Internet Age. Uh, this is obviously a great revival for religious or spiritual practices. So paint this picture a little bit further. Let's say there is, you have this rural space and then you have this showroom in the city. Um, what does the rural space look like? How many people meet there? How can you like, speculate on a little further on what that image well, is? Well, isn't that exactly what you should ask yourself about that and not ask me? Because that's actually your archetype more than mine. Let's think about that for a while. I would say so, Daniel. I think it is. I think you actually hit, you nailed your primary archetype, which could be my secondary archetype. But I think I would actually prefer to ask you that question and then ask you to give it a few months to think about it. Yeah. What, what would you create your favorite rural community? Who would you invite to do it with? Because I'm seeing people doing it in Scandinavia and I'm sure Scandinavia and Canada are perfect for these things now. What makes you think that's my primary archetype? Just a sense of your personality. Mm. It's funny so. because when you did say, when you were first describing this, um, it mapped onto a dream of mine that I've had for a number of years. Hey, I am a Lacanian psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> Glad I hit it right there. So no, you, you did. I, I've always you don't said, always hit it right, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say so. Yes, I've, I've always wanted to buy up a bunch of land and bring all my favorite people together. Yeah, and and uh, of course, some people do it and they do ecological permaculture things like that. I tell them I wouldn't be too obsessed with the farming methods. Actually, yeah, it's too much of an industrial rethink of what it means to live in a sort of digital physical balanced place, but uh, I'd rather think of, I would, okay, other guys talk more about the permaculture. <laughs> right. I talk about more about the new chosen family that lives in that place. And that doesn't necessarily have to make a living from carrots, <laughs> selling carrots in the farmer's market. It, that's too posh to me. Now, I'd rather think of it that, I think a lot of the major value to the economy will come out of people who work in these environments. And certainly the major artistic addition to 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 the to society to the society of the future of the next 20 30 years will come from these places i think the vast majority of artists are moving out of the galleries and white walls and they're moving to these type of communities where the whole community can become a work of art so why wouldn't you live in a place in the countryside where that house 
and, and the houses next door and whatever else you build in there becomes a work of art. So you have the future museum right there in itself, right. rather than putting stuff in a gallery white walls and have some people then capitalists go and buy it and then make their own private collections. Then maybe after you dead 30 years later, they pick a few works of art from the different collections to put together temporarily a little exhibition in another gallery with white walls, okay? You don't do art on galleries with white walls any longer. Nobody wants to, it's too limiting. When in your entire life, can be a work of art. When building your own tribe can be a work of art. When moving that tribe to an environment where you can express yourself freely, why would that be in a densely populated city when it could be in the countryside? You know, the, it's, um, yeah, it's a return to rural in that sense. We don't lose the connection with urban. We still keep the urban environments in the sense where they're beneficial to us. And you know, if you're gonna travel around the world like I do all the time, you've got to live close to an airport. Otherwise you can't do that. Right. So, uh, I, I sort of, we always did that in Scandinavia. I'm sure you did the same thing in Canada too. You always had the mix of urban and rural anyway. And it's precisely the culture where urban and rural were mixed. Even the middle classes could afford to have an urban, rural, mixed lifestyle. Those are exactly the places where I would expect these new, more experimental forms of family building and clan building and tribe building will happen first. And all of this would be a lot easier once you have fuck off money, right? Yeah. And so if, if you haven't, you know, quite done that yet. How can somebody leverage the, the insight from these trends, let's say, maybe not just to make fuck off money, but to, to put themselves in a position of leverage? Maybe I it's not say, actually about I would say I would say that if you look at the world of philanthropy, I don't think a philanthropist today could put their money into anything more meaningful than building a digital monastery in the countryside of Canada or Sweden. Hmm. Because then they're investing in the future directly. Getting out of the sort of spending money to charity events sort of thing, or, or you know, all go to Africa and actually not knowing what you're doing because if you come as a philanthropist to Africa, you're probably more interfering with than destroying, you know, really, you know, the, the really, really tense systems. This kind of systems you got in this society. So sort of the, the human ecology of society is easily destroyed when, when foreign forces are interfering and throwing their ideas into the system. So I would say if I'm a philanthropist today, I would invest my money in documentary filmmaking and certainly building digitally monasterial communities in the countryside. Because artists, artists need philanthropists. The philanthropists love artists. It's a good combo. Right, right. But if you haven't made the fuck of money yourself, there are people who made the fuck of money and are getting tired with having the fuck of money, want investing in something meaningful to them. And why don't you invite those to build this type of community with you? Yeah, and I think this ties back into to being a, a netocrat or being a part or on the inside of these networks where you have access to those people who yeah. buy into the same vision that, that you're and, proposing. And don't, and don't become dependent on political systems or political bureaucracies because I think they're they going to have enormous problems with the next 30 years. You don't want to be dependent on state handouts or anything like that at all. Then you're in the wrong place. It's, yeah. it's a, that I would strongly advise against. And, so... Like going back to just really practically, how, how do you suggest somebody navigate the digital environment other than having a conscious relationship with what they're consuming and also having some sort of ratio to, to production, actually putting stuff out there? Uh, I think we're still developing that. I don't think anybody can answer that now. Right. I think we're all personally struggling with the sort of digital physical balance and the digital digital balance. Like yeah. what are you doing when you're online? I mean, yeah, you, you, you can moralize against scrolling, but 
you also discover that just scrolling and surfing and especially following hyperlinks brings you into places you never thought you would discover otherwise. Mm -hmm. I'm a map person myself. And I, I follow Hegel's advice to always look at a world map the first thing I do in the morning and say, this is the world I live in. Okay, forget about outer space. It's not that interesting. Elon Musk has fallen into the trap of thinking Mars is more interesting than Siberia. It's more, more boring than Siberia. Okay, it's, it's colder and worse. So you might as well go to Siberia alone rather than go to Mars. But you look at the world map and then you discover, okay, there are places where a lot of people live, densely populated, the places where not so many people live. What can you do with these different places? What is already being done? What, what I want to discover? What kind of dialogues can I go into? What can I learn from these cultures? And this was the type of curiosity, by the way, that brought me, me to Eastern philosophy in the 1980s. I wasn't one of these new age types who went for something exotic. Mm. I was genuinely interested in the East since culture starts with the East, civilization starts with the East, and the West is more or less an appendix to the East. So I knew that I would definitely belong to the first generation of Western philosophers who'd be ashamed of myself if I started with the Greeks. Mm. I had to start way earlier than the Greeks knowing that that's also not possible. So that's why I started pursuing you know, Eastern philosophy. And of course, um, then I discovered that almost anything I learned about it was wrong, interesting. I had to travel to East myself. I had to learn several languages. I had to spend years traveling around Asia to try to find a proper map of the Eurasian continent, like what is Asia, what is Europe, what's in between the Middle East, especially. And it brought me a lot to the Middle East that I'm incredibly fascinated with, especially since so much of philosophy comes out of there. And uh, these days, I'm, I'm an old friend of mine is Manuel de Landa, highly recommended philosopher for you to read. Manu Delanda is a Mexican philosopher. I think last time I heard from him, he was a professor of architecture at Princeton, which is mm. exactly the place you put a guy like him. And he's written fantastic books about the difference between harbor cities and trading places and capital cities with strong hierarchies. So he's like a precursor to Niall Ferguson's and my and John Sedeke's work today. And I always shared Manu Delanda. He's very shamanic openly shamanic. Like he goes to see his, his shamans in Mexico every year to get inspiration for his books. That's why the books are great. Manuel Deland and I used to hang out in New York in the 1990s. And we talked a lot about that if we would become successful as philosophers, both did, we would share the sentiment towards the wilder and crazier trading posts of the world. That's eventually why I became great friends with a guy like Thaddeus Russell. Now, Thaddeus Russell is like the Alexander Bard of America. Alexander Bard is like the Thaddeus Russell of Europe. We, we, we have tons of fun about that. But it's this shared love of the shamanoid people and the shamanic neighborhoods, you know, harbor areas, red light districts, all those kinds of things. Even, you know, the stock exchange is in a way shamanic, you know, because uh, it's wild and crazy and full of risk takers. Tons of drugs, all those things that are shamanic are in those places. So um, yeah, that's what I wanted to pursue. And that eventually, as I got older, that brought me to the countryside um, and returned to a countryside that I, I lived in as a kid, but now in a, a, whole, a whole new view, whole new glasses put on seeing a potential for the future in building sort of really high tech environments that are still truly rural. Yeah, and along that journey, you you converted to Zoroastrianism, right? Yeah. So I got really, really immersed and I'm writing a lot about what we call the Silk Route Triad. So along the Silk Route, eventually they had so many different schools of thought and so many schools of spirituality. Like every oasis you came to along the trade route had a different variety of spirituality. Uh, and that just differed slightly. And over time that could look quite different. But if you go to China, eventually the different schools of thought 
sort of amalgamated into Taoism and its own tantric traditions, for example, and in Persia that amalgamated into Zoroastrianism with its tantric practices, and then eventually in India that amalgamated into Buddhism with its different tantric practices. And, and even more interestingly, it's, it's in the harbor areas no, not harbor areas, but rather the mountainous areas, I would say, in between these places along the trade routes, like places like Tibet, that's when you have really advanced schools of thought where people isolate themselves for maybe 15 years just to see what, what happened to them rather than just sit and talk to people all day long. And that's incredibly fascinating. And when you see it that way and you see how these different schools of thought relate to one another and have inspired each other over time, it makes an awful lot of sense. And I think these are the best sources we have today to do a creative philosophy for the specific age we're moving into now, because we live in a globalized world, but when we try to create functioning tribal local, tribal local communities that make sense to us as human, whereas technology itself doesn't care about tribal at all. Technology itself is completely imperial, global in scope. Technology doesn't know borders, why would it? If two clouds of data could unite with each other, they would in a second because they both benefit from it. Mm. And they don't have marriage quarrels <laughs> like humans do. So they don't have this sort of membranes in between each other that we humans have, but we do. So we have to understand that the local and the human and the global and technological is the kind of new quadrant we're working with now. And what way could we then create narratives that make sense to people, that are truthful, that help them find the right paths in their life and help them find a new role in what it means to be human in relation to digital, in relation to AI, in relation to all the complexities of a globalized world. So I got an image while you were speaking there where historically it was the geography or the topology that created the, the membranes that isolated, say, people in the mountains and then allowed those individuals to develop a certain attitude, philosophy, behavior towards life. We've since lost that because technology is very flat. And now the narratives are going to reintroduce these membranes for these rich networks of, of tribal nodes. Yes, exactly. So um, say you grew up in a mountainous area like Persia, or you grew up in a flatland area densely populated like Mesopotamia, two very different cultures. India's history, same thing. The mountains and the river valleys, different. They need to collaborate, not be war with one another. How do you figure that out? China, same thing. How do you differentiate between mountains and valleys? The history of the Americas, same thing. Uh, how do you differentiate between valleys, densely populated valleys, and mountainous areas, Aztecs and Mayas, for example. Mm -hmm. So these different cultures develop and they become different. They often conquer one another, but eventually you have to create some kind of a system that makes sense to both of them. And I just think we're going to take that on to because our genes were shaped in those environments. We're going to take that over and on to the digital realm and discuss what does it mean to be digital nomad, meaning you easily travel across the world from one culture to the next, which means you can benefit a lot from that. Uh, what does it mean to be very locally grounded? So your archetype is one of, I got to find a specific place where I can ground myself and from that place I can then operate you know, the best way I possibly can. What does it mean to be an somewhere? What does it mean to be an anywhere? What does it mean to be an everywhere person? Th those are, again, you see the topologies that pop up here? It's mm -hmm. like, uh, is your does your life consist of airport lounges? Well, airport lounges today are exactly like trading posts along the trade route. That means you probably have a, originally a hunter mentality that's then become a trader mentality 
that is now becoming a mentality of airport lounges and tons of traveling where you're traveling around the world and creating works of art wherever you go. Whereas for other people, it's more like, no, 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 that won't work for me. I'm much more a warrior type. It's much more about finding a specific valley that I defend. I build fences around the valley, strong membranes. But within that valley, I can create a really fantastic family or a clan, larger family of people that really can become, can become a role model for other people. To, 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 this is the way of life you could have if you decide to locate yourself in a place and become a somewhere. So yeah, all of these things will happen. We will have different topologies and the different topologies will be both mental and they'll be physical and therefore they will reflect who we are and we will use digital to express them. And the stories, the narratives that the protopians are creating are what they're going to serve as these beacons to allow people to make sense of who they are and how they fit in this yeah. flatter world. And the algorithms will tell you whether they're relevant to you or not. Algorithms right. operate according to the infotainment principle that you, you want to get informed and you don't mind if you're also being entertained. Now, if you're infotained, you will come back, you will go there again, you might even look a second time, you will recommend it to your friends. That's when you get all those scores in the algorithm and you get the top of the algorithm. I would say that infotainment, the infotainment principle is in general for all human beings. For those who dare to challenge themselves, you add the aspect of antagonism to that. So you say, yeah, nine times out of 10, I will follow what the algorithm suggests because the algorithm will suggest when people who are like me, who, 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 where they've already been and enjoy being, which means I will very, very likely like to go there too. That's how Spotify has become really good at picking new songs for you that you like, right? But every 10th time or so, you want to throw in a complete surprise, mm -hmm. like something you'd never expect. Hopefully something really challenges you too, like an opinion for somebody who's totally different from you. And if you take on to that, you become a lot smarter. And I think the very definition of being smart and stupid will increasingly become one of, do you embrace that's what's different to you? Or do you just push it off and say, no, I don't want anything to do with it. This reminds that me is, a lot of- That is, that is really, yeah. That is exactly my main argument against the Chinese communist dream or the Chinese communist dictatorship sensocracy. My argument is that any kind of system that has a dictator at the top will have people terrified of the dictator. So they will not go to the dictator with anything that is uncomfortable for him to hear because if you're a dictator, you don't like the antagonic. That's the first thing you disqualify. You say, no, I only want to hear things that I like. Okay. Then you don't get a truthful version of the outside world. Sooner or later, that comes falling down. Um, Stalin died alone. Mm. No doctors wanted to see him the last five days of his life because his doctors agreed with one another. That if anyone walked into the room and saw Stalin dying, they were very likely to be executed the next second. So they just decided that we're all gonna save our lives and save our privileges and have careers because we're court physicians, but we're not gonna go in and see Stalin. Uh, let him just die lonely. And I think that idea of the completely lonely dictator dying is a very, very good idea for us going forward in what we want to avoid in ourselves. And that's exactly why I'm such a strong proponent of antagony, not from a moralistic point of view, but just from, you know, an intelligence, being clever, being smart point of view that engage in conversations with people that challenge you and you're uncomfortable with, and you will become smarter in that process. Yeah. So throughout this, I guess a few principles for netocrats are emerging. And one of them is practice antagony and develop a good relationship with it, get into disagreements, 
tweak your algorithm so that you're exposed to positive black swans and you're not in an echo chamber. Another yes. one is to develop a really good relationship with the digital world that also involves a good relationship with the physical world. Don't spend the whole day online. Learn how to have a physical life. Um, there is something in here about also producing things. I've heard you say before that the algorithms will actually just decide for you if what you create is good or not. And so you might as well just put something out there for it to, to work with. Oh yeah. I mean, it's great with algorithms is that we can put out tons of shit in YouTube and we would just be forgotten. Yeah. 5 million songs on Spotify never heard, but they don't disturb us. Right. So the great thing with the internet is that it can actually swallow tons of junk for the first time in history and it will not disturb anybody. Now, of course, there will be you know, gold within the junk. There'll be stuff in there that nobody has discovered yet and nobody understands yet. And for some of us, going into that junk and trying to find that gold will also be an archetype. Mm. But probably further down the line. But I'm just saying that. I'm just saying that we might as well experiment widely right now and put tons of shit out there. And the way I do it, for example, this conversation, no idea how many people will follow it. But I know for a fact that if I go into sort of a really highbrow, advanced philosophical conversation like I do with Andrew Sweeney and Thomas Hamrick on a regular basis, it has a few thousand followers. I'm kind of shocked that anybody wants to follow it because they, they're really bright philosophy students who really want to understand the process of how thinking works, I think. The, the, yeah, the, the, yeah. the guys who follow that conversation. Then, for example, in Scandinavia, when I'm very much a public person, I, I get to see these other people who kind of these days, the kind of digital celebrities, and we sit down for conversations for an hour, and the next day we have two, three hundred thousand people who viewed it and applauded, you know, it, it, which is a lot in the country of 10 million. But that's because I take a much more general view when I walk into that room and I am talking directly so that just about anybody can understand what I'm talking about. And this I'm talking about things like political activism or I'm talking about, for example, that why I'm tired of woke capitalism and advertising, and anybody can get it. So I can both be lowbrow and highbrow. I can both be very mainstream. I can both be specialized. And anybody can do that today. So before you go onto YouTube, skip the quantity the first thing you do. You know, First of all, just get engaged in something you're on fire about and try to do this as best as you possibly can and put it out there. Mm. And eventually you will get the reactions, you get the following. And in anything you do today, I always recommend people never to go for the hype. Build slowly and gradually. Try to keep high quality in the things you put out there and your following will gradually grow and grow. Yeah, and then you'll have a higher quality audience. There's this phenomenon yes. in tech platforms that they're additive by nature. Like Twitter, it's very easy to add followers and to follow more people, but you can't batch unfollow or batch block people once you're at you know 10K or 100K followers. And yeah. that's the incentive of the platform. The platform wants to scale, but it's not necessarily good for you and having a good relationship with those people that are following you. So it's better to build slowly. And then they say block early and block often so that you have a high quality list of people. Well, I don't block, but that's because I can afford to let anybody follow, but I don't let people interfere when they have completely different interests from mine or they're just not interested. Like the, the people who just waste their time destroying fathers or things like that, they, then you could block. I'm not against blocking as a principle. I'm just saying that it's easier to let people follow because you never know who could turn around six years from now suddenly and figure out what you're up to. And if they were then blocked, then you've lost a friend, right? Mm, so. I, I, I'm trying to defend free speech as much as possible right now. 
And I think if you're consequential with that idea and you think free speech leads to free research, it leads to an open mind to begin with, it leads to more antagony, more antagony is better for all the humanity. If you're gonna solve major existential problems, it's absolutely necessary. So I, I just try to pursue co-creating an internet, which is the exact opposite of Xi Jinping's nightmare. Mm. Let's put it that way. That's what I'm interested in. Yeah. Well, Bard, we've been talking for a little over an hour and uh, yeah. there's a bunch of other places I could take this, but I want to end on a, on a quote that I heard you say that I thought was really spot on. And I want to hear you riff on this. He said, I don't know where you said this, but he said, never trust a man who looks like he doesn't have a sex life. And this <laughs> intuitively resonates as something true. And I've shared this with other people and they, they all get it. But what did you mean by that? What I meant is that a man who hasn't fixed his sex life will be so obsessed with it that we'd be totally preoccupied with it. And if you go back to Jordan Peterson again, the Cain and Abel story, he will be a Cain. Mm. So he will regard any guy who has a functioning sex life as an Abel, and he will try to kill him or he envies him, and he'll be obsessed with it. And he cannot be trusted. I'm not saying the same thing goes with women. They have more of a turn on and turn off button, and I... I they should appreciate that because it's kind of haunting men that this is an obsession of ours. But especially when I do men's work, and there's a lot of that going on in Europe at the moment. And when I do men's work, I always emphasize with the guys. It's a very good start to say, the guy hasn't fixed his sex life, cannot be trusted. And they all shake their heads and go, yes. Especially the ones that haven't. And then I said, for those of you who haven't done that, I would recommend you take this path. Here's a tantric teacher here, charismatic guy, obviously sleeps with tons of women. You know, funny guy, definitely shamanoid. He's going to take you through courses tomorrow, including how you masturbate properly, you know, and how you regulate your porn consumption properly and things like that. So, so you can you can just be, and eventually you're going to be a guy who can go on a date with a woman in a civilized way and enjoy it, you know. So it. That's that's a great thing to pursue as, as a starting point and start from there. And I think also my scope there's wider than say Jordan Peterson's because Jordan always returns to him and Tammy and they they were puppy love in their teens and everybody Tr should love traditionalism. Like, very traditional. Like I I'm not at all traditional here. So I'm much more in the Thaddeus Russell mode where I'm like no experiment wildly. And you can also just outsource your sex life and say, so, okay, it's, it's not too much of a concern to me, but my friend over here is pursuing it. So I'm not frustrated with it. The point here is to get the envy out of your head mm. and, and be responsible for your own sex life and your own satisfaction. And having that done with, so you can say, sex life fixed, great. What do I do next? Oh, wonderful. I can pursue tons of things. I can fulfill my both my primary and my secondary archetype, and I will get respect from other men because they will trust me. I think this is particularly relevant today because of the internet. And I think yes. a lot of men are outsourcing in a negative sense their sexual proclivities to the internet. And I don't know what the stat is, but like 60% of internet traffic is pornographic in nature or something like that. So the internet can be even seen as this archetype of the devouring mother. And there's like an Oedipal relationship that a lot of men have with it. Yeah, there's something good though with the pornography where I agree with that is Russell Rod and Jordan Peterson. And that is pornography's pathical storytelling. Mm. Like sex and violence is very real. That's exactly because the pathical narrative, you can't mix theater and pornography. Any attempt ever made to make a film that had both in it never worked. 
There was a film called Colleagues and Antisemitism, miserable failure, only interesting because it failed so massively, right? It was even a class analysis kind of movie because the actors refused to do the porn scenes. So they brought in porn actors to do the porn scenes, which is really slavery. <laughs> you know? mm. it's like, if you don't want to do the porn scenes in a film to try to mix film and porn, then why are you in it in the first place, right? So Helen Mirren was saying that she didn't do porn scenes. And I'm just like, what the fuck do you do the film for? You know, but it's interesting the pathical and mythical cannot be mixed. But I think also we should be reminded that a lot of people take to pornography because it's so damn real that only a real life murder or something would be on a par with getting invited into a pornographic uh, scene because it's so real, right? And, and that realness that comes to pornography, I think is also one of its attractions. It's not only the pornography sort of pseudo satisfies a sexual desire that doesn't have any outlet. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you've got a great sexual partner, you're not gonna watch pornography. Actually, that's probably when you should watch it and discover what it means to you in addition to a really great relationship, right? So I'm much more pro-pornography. I'm, I'm more aligned there with Camille Paglia and Matthias Russell than I am with Jordan Peterson. So I just wanna say that. But I think any guy out there today knows that if your sex life consists of pornography and masturbation only, it is not satisfying. Why do you call pornography real? Most, of the, most people will describe it as, as the opposite. No, I think it's incredibly real. Do you mean it's one of the realest things that most people have access to oh, in terms of their God, visceral reaction? The juicy pussy and the hard on dick are real. But they're images and they're reenactments. Yeah, but they're, they're real. super normal. No, no, they're real. I mean, you, you cannot fuck a woman if you're a porn star unless you're actually turned on by her. You can't fuck her otherwise. Whereas if, you, if you're an actor in a movie, even if you kiss the actress, you don't kiss her at all the way you would kiss a person you would love. You can just pretend you do that. That's the beauty of theater. So theater works completely with representation or something it represents. But the realness of pornography is what's interesting with it. In that sense, pornography is the same thing as say watching ISIS slowly slaughter somebody what, mm. not, who actually dies, okay? That is called pathical narrative. And I think we have replaced the pathical narrative actually seeing real murders. We used to go to hangings in the past and cheer right. them on when somebody was executed, right? Now, when that disappeared and we stopped killing people, and you know, at least we lynch mobbed a little less with the exception of Adolf Hitler, then we instead move to something like pornography. And at the end of the day, I prefer pornography over violence in, in the proper sense, because I think, but I think the sum of sex and violence in any given society is a constant. Byung Chul Han, the Korean philosopher has written a lot about this and he's absolutely right. And that means that the violence cannot be hidden. And if the violence isn't out there in the open, it probably returns as a superego injunction inside of the citizens themselves. That means that a lot of young guys today are their own worst enemies mm -hmm. because they take out the violence on themselves. And what I recommend those guys to do when I see that pattern is martial arts, please. <laughs> Here's a card. Here's a friend. He does martial arts. Go there, train martial arts. Get it out and be violent with other guys, but in a controlled setting where you don't actually kill them but you feel what it means to actually kill another guy. And next, go hunting, <laughs> kill animals, because you can kill animals, that's not illegal. And you also understand what proper violence is, and you don't have to be that massively violent against yourself otherwise. So it's the same thing with violence with sex. These are pathical energies, incredibly human. Machines will never understand them, and AI will never understand pathos. Mm. 
That's why an AI will not crack a joke. That's why an AI will not want to fuck. An AI will not do any of these pathical things. But the pathical things are more human than ever and will become more important to us in increasingly intelligent surrounding that we'll live in. So the more AI we have around us, the more we'll think, okay, in what way am I different from the machine? It's one of the, it's one of the major questions of Sadiqism of my philosophy. In what way is man different from machine? And our answer to that is that man is pathical. And machine is strictly logical. But because man is both pathical and logical, machine is only logical. Only man can understand mythical. Because mythical is the merger, or the attempt to merger, logical and pathical, which still, again, machine cannot understand. Machine can only ever do logical operations. It can do so quickly, efficiently, but it can't do anything else. We haven't invented any machines that have done anything close or reminiscent of the mythical or the pathical. Those are exclusive realms for humans still. So increasingly, as machines take over more and more or encroach more and more on our lives, there will be a premium on those who are well-versed in the mythical and the pathical? Yes, you got it. And that's why it's a good future for Protopians. Let's see Sounds if we like get it. the other guys to get their shit together too. Yeah. Well, Bart, I, I really enjoyed this conversation with you, and I hope uh, we have another one. So did I, Daniel. Really yeah. love this conversation. <laughs>